Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 again this morning. Luke chapter 3. And we will begin down in verse 7. As we have covered uh, verses 1 through 6 last week, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, the reality of John's ministry, the foundation of John's ministry being the Word of God, the theme of of John's ministry being repentance and the purpose of John's ministry being verse 6 that all flesh may see the salvation of God. That's his desire in preparing people for the arrival of Christ. Today in verse 7 we begin looking at the message of John's ministry and we find that his message is a message of warning. His message of repentance is a message of Warning, and that's not always pleasant to study, but it is absolutely necessary to study. You know, many Christians would be very surprised to find that the Bible, and the New Testament in particular, is filled with warnings, isn't it? Warnings of sin, warnings of wrath, warnings of judgment. It's full of warnings concerning the high cost of forsaking everything to follow Jesus, including forsaking your sin. That's what John's going to be getting at here in Luke chapter 3 in his message. And part of that surprise is because in previous generations, uh, I believe the message of warnings from Scripture were prevalent and grace was minimized in so many ways. And in today's preaching, in today's evangelism, that has switched where grace is now the primary topic of preaching and evangelism. And warnings from Scripture have all been all but been neglected. And there is a balance that must be struck between the two because Scripture strikes the balance between the two. But the reality of the fact is that if we begin to tell people that they must give up their sin to follow Jesus, they think we are entirely crazy. I think that's absurd. But in reality, that's exactly what God says, isn't it? One must give up sin to follow God. That's 1 John chapter 3. that says that sin cannot go together with a person who belongs to God. Sin and God don't go together. They're opposite of one another. They're opposed to each other. And so we may be surprised to find the reality of warnings in Scripture, but really... We shouldn't be surprised because even as believers, we're commanded and instructed and commissioned to issue these warnings found in Scripture to the world. As God issues warnings, we as His ambassadors are to issue and understand the reality of these warnings that John will bring up in chapter 3. And really what I want you to see today in in John 3 verses 7 through 9 is that John's message of repentance and his Approach with warnings is really an act of great love and concern and mercy. When you proclaim the message of repentance, you're proclaiming a message of grace, a message of love, a message of mercy. And so not only would people really be surprised that the New Testament is filled with warnings, they'd be surprised to find out that the forerunner to the Christ does his preparation ministry, prepares people for the arrival of Christ by way of warnings and repentance. We would expect that the 
arrival of Christ and the preparation for the people to be ready for the arrival of Christ would elicit praise and celebration and, and a joyous outpouring. And, and that's not necessarily a false assumption, but it's not a completely accurate assumption either. Because instead of praise and celebration and a joyous occasion, John spends his time warning the people to repent. Warning them of the high price of sin. That's his preparation ministry he's more concerned with holiness and purity and forsaking unrighteousness for the sake of righteousness john's whole preparation ministry his whole life of being the forerunner of the christ here in luke 3 involves calling people to four things to one know the sin in their hearts Two, know the condemnation that that sin places them under Three, know the need to be freed from that sin. And four, know that faith in Jesus is required for that freedom from sin. That's the message of repentance. That's the message of the Gospel. That's what John's doing in his preparation ministry. Know the sin in your heart. Know the condemnation that sin brings. Know your need to be freed from that sin. And know that your only freedom comes in Jesus. But... Although we know that to be the gospel and we know that this message of repentance that John proclaims, these warnings are necessary for the world to understand. There are many people who get tripped over, tripped up over the idea, the concept, the term of repentance, isn't there? Mainly because they classify it as too hard in their mind. That's too hard of a message for people to ever become a Christian, to, to ever believe that in reality, they forget that Jesus says the way is narrow, isn't it? And it is hard to find and not many people are going to travel it. But they also claim that it's not just too hard, but it actually pushes people away instead of drawing them in. And shouldn't we be drawing them in and not pushing them away? But what you're going to find in John's message is his message of warning and repentance actually works very, very well. And like I said, the stern rebuke and the stern warning is actually an act of love and actually an act of, learn, of concern because really if sin does incur the wrath of God, and it does, isn't it the utmost sign of love to warn people of that? It is. And wouldn't it be a complete act of disregard to know that sin brings the wrath of God and to not tell anyone about that? John's message here may be shocking to us, but it is a message of mercy. It's a message of compassion. It's a message of concern for the people around him. You need to repent because sin brings God's wrath. And before we get into the passage in verse 7 there, I do want to look at and highlight some thoughts about repentance. Because to understand John's message and his intentions, we have to clearly understand some truth about repentance itself. Some of these things we covered last week. But first I want you to know about repentance. Repentance is not a legalistic message or a have-to-be-good-enough kind of message. That's not repentance. It's not an act or an element of works for salvation by any means. It's not the idea that if you sin less, then God will like you. And it's not the idea that obedience is what brings salvation. That's not repentance. Instead, repentance is that warning that you must give up your sin to trust in God because you cannot have both 
together, right? You can't have a life for God and a life for sin together. They're opposite of each other. They're opposed from one another. And the church needs to hear these warnings. Needs to hear these calls to holiness. You can't live a life of sin and have a life for God. They are completely opposite of one another. You can't serve those two masters. And so to have God, one must reject sin. So repentance is a giving up, a letting go of sin, and a turning to God for life. Repentance also expresses the worth of God. That He is worthy of forsaking sin. That He is more valuable than sin is. Just imagine the picture of it. Any person that's willing to forsake the sinful desires of their heart for God clearly portrays that God is more worthy than the sinful desires in my heart. Thirdly, repentance is a warning of love that extends out so that sinners may turn to God while God is patient and not incur the wrath of God. It's a warning of love. Second, Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, His promise of returning, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all should turn from sin and trust in Him. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Understand what Peter's saying there. There's coming a day, and it's coming quickly, and it's coming unexpectedly, when the heavens and the earth are going to pass away with a roar. They're going to be dissolved up and burned up. But now the Lord's being patient before that day so that some may reach repentance. So repentance itself is a warning of love that God extends out so that sinners may turn while He's patient and not incur His wrath. Because here's the reality of it, church. God will not always offer salvation. It is a gracious, gracious act that He saves any people now. That He does offer salvation now. But there is coming a day when God will shut the door on all unbelievers. And that door, when shut, is shut permanently. Shut for eternity. Repentance, the fact that we are warned of the reality of sin and exhorted to turn from sin and trust in God is a message of love. And closely associated with that, number four, repentance is a sign and a show of God's grace that He offers to sinners. The very fact that we are able to repent shows God's grace upon mankind. The very fact that He provided a way of salvation or provided a way of repentance is a show of His grace. So in short, repentance is for our benefit, isn't it? Repentance is meant to make us conform to the image of Jesus, Romans 8, 29. It's meant to take those who are broken, those who are corrupted, those who are sinners, and actually help them conform to the image of Jesus Himself. And the very basic 
idea of repentance that I want to highlight today is repentance is for sinners. Listen to Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus Himself speaking says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's the reality of it. To deny repentance is to deny the ministry of Christ. Is to deny the desire of God. That's what we're going to find today in Luke 3. And John's message, this repentance that expresses the worth of God, that, that shows the grace of God, the love of God to all mankind. And we find it in a somewhat shocking manner. Let's look there in Luke chapter 3 now, verse 7. And we'll read through the passage and then begin to walk back through it. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Luke writes about John. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our, fa as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. That passage there is John's message and John's instruction to those who respond to his message. And what we find in verses 7 through 9 is a very uncommon evangelistic strategy for today, isn't it? Many people would regard John's approach here as crazy, forceful, and too hard, too stern. But what we find really is John is dealing unashamedly and directly with sin, isn't he? He's not beating around the bush. He's not hiding anything. He's getting right to the heart of the matter. Sin is the issue. Let's look at the type of crowd that's coming out to him. You notice in verse 7, Luke reports he's saying this to the crowds. Matthew's account actually says he's saying this to the Pharisees. Those, those two descriptions aren't in opposition to each other. We know John's popularity. It's very likely that the crowd was full of common people and Pharisees. He's saying this to a large group of people who've come out to him. So both Pharisees and a crowd of people are hearing him speak. But also I want you to know these are people who are coming out to be baptized by him. That's a major deal. Because that means they were, at least in some form, repentant and in some form attracted to John's message initially. Attracted to the idea and the theme of John's ministry that we find in verse 3, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's a major deal because you remember what this baptism is. It's not a Christian baptism. It's a proselyte baptism. It was a baptism that the Jews saw only necessary for Gentiles. 
a baptism that they would make Gentiles who converted to Judaism publicly do just to simply say as a symbol, I'm giving up my pagan idolatry life and now coming to the one true God. And so in the mind of the Jews, this was a baptism that was symbolic of being purified, was symbolic of repenting from idols and coming to God. And it's a major deal because you remember Jews were not baptized like this. And so for a Jew to come out to be baptized like this, they were identifying themselves as Gentiles. No better than the pagan Gentiles. I still need forgiveness for my sins before God. So it's a major act that these people would come out to be baptized. It shows that in some form at least, this crowd is repentant. But what is, ne- what is intriguing about this is although they're repentant, John pulls no punches about the message, does he? It's striking to us and it's shocking to us how John speaks to them. Because he doesn't share anything with them that's laced with forgiveness or mercy like we would expect or even like we hear today. These are people, John, that are already somewhat repentant. Why not encourage them in their repentance? Why not encourage them in love and in gentleness and encourage them on in their thinking? That's not what John does. His message isn't fixed with flattery words. It's not mixed with a fluffy message of helpfulness, is it? We may be shocked at John's message here, but really John is proclaiming a message of truth to them. He doesn't hide again the reality of sin. He doesn't dismiss the gravity of sin in his message. He gets to the core of the issue rather quickly, doesn't he? The issue being sin separates you from God. The basic, most fundamental problem of humanity. Your sin separates you from God. And John doesn't hide that. Doesn't beat around the bush again. He goes straight to the core of the issue. Sin separates you from God, so repent of your sin. Turn, reject, leave behind your sin and follow after God. He preaches here a message of uncompromising nature. He's not shying away from the truth of the matter. He's not a coward. He's not afraid. And he's not afraid of scaring people away from God. He's laying out the truth and entrusting God with the results. John's message towards these people and towards sin is uncompromising because God is uncompromising on the subject, isn't He? God has a high standard. And sin is not dealt with lightly by God. In fact, God detests sin. Sin is what killed His Son. Sin is what corrupted His creation. Sin is what caused His humanity to rebel. So John preaches a clear message here of conviction. One that cuts to the heart with precision, accuracy, and lightning speed. A message that really the world needs to hear today, isn't it? That you have transgressed God's law, and unless you turn to Jesus for salvation, you will be held accountable for that transgression. 
That's what John's saying. This isn't comfortable to read. It's not comfortable to study. It's not comfortable to listen to. But it is 100% accurate. In fact, I would ask you, how could people realize their need for a Savior if they don't realize the significance of their sin like John's laying out before them? For John, this is the place to start in preparing the world for the arrival of Christ. Again, it's not a message of celebration. It's not a message of joy. It's not a message of peace. It's a message of strict repentance. So for him, preparing people for Jesus doesn't involve anything other than telling them to repent of their sin, to turn from their condemnation and turn to God. That is his ministry. And really, church, how great of a message is that? It may seem shocking to us. It may seem difficult to us. It may seem like a hard pressed message, but it is a glorious message, even that we are able to turn from condemnation and find salvation in Jesus. So his strict message of warning here is meant to open the eyes of the urgent need of repentance. It's meant to show the gravity of the sin and humanity's hearts. And it's meant to show the reality of judgment for sin. And all of those aspects pierce so deeply into this crowd, they come repentant. So I want to highlight here the three things that John talks about here. Three warnings that we find in his message. The first one is a warning of certain wrath found there in verse 7. A warning of certain wrath. He begins by calling these people a brood of vipers. It's not attractive language. It's not something you're going to find that builds attendance in a church by any means. But what he does there is he identifies their hearts, doesn't he? He identifies what their heart's desire is. They are a brood of viper. They are those people who bite their victims and inject the poison of self-righteousness in them. And inject the poison of hypocrisy within them. And inject the poison of legalism within them. And all three of those lead most certainly to death. Just like the venom of a viper. That's who these people are. They are the people who can only offer death to their victims. They're as nasty as a brood, a nest, a home of vipers. And therefore, according to John, they are under certain wrath and they must flee. And he asks them, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that's coming? It's a certain wrath. And what is making you, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, you legalists, what is making you flee from the wrath that's coming. Who has warned you? Who has told you to come to me for the answer of deliverance? Who told you to flee from God's sure, sure wrath? It's a strong opening statement. So many people today want to denounce the wrath of God, don't they? They wonder how a good God could have any kind of wrath within Him. But let me, let me tell you something. God's wrath is not in opposition to His goodness. God's wrath enhances His goodness. Because goodness cannot compromise on evil, can it? Justice 
cannot turn the blind eye to wrongdoing. Perfection cannot compromise on something that is broken, just like love cannot compromise on hate. God's wrath enhances His goodness. And the warning of His wrath is not meant to destroy. That's a common misconception. The warning of His wrath is meant to evoke repentance and renewal and to heighten the understanding of His goodness and His hatred of evil. In fact, Jesus is going to follow this same line of teaching in His whole ministry. He spends His whole ministry warning of these things. Extending grace, extending love, but warning of the reality of sin, the high cost of following Him, and the reality of God's coming wrath. You find it just in the Gospel of Matthew. You find it in chapter 4, verse 17, chapter 8, verse 18 through 22, chapter 10, verses 16 through 25, and verses 34 through 39. You find it again in chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 19, and many other places. That's just the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus warns of the high cost of following him, the reality of sin, and the impending wrath of God upon unbelievers. And the reason John and the reason Jesus spend so much time and spend this effort warning of the coming wrath of God is because the wrath of God is real, isn't it? Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. It's coming don't ignore it. It's here. It's going to come. It's certain. It's as certain as the fury of the sun. It's as certain as God Himself, isn't it? It's a wrath of justice. It's a wrath of fairness. It's a wrath of holiness. It's a wrath of perfection. It's even a wrath that's mixed with fury according to Scripture. And according to John here in Luke chapter 3, it's a specific wrath. A specific wrath coming upon all who do not repent. Who do not bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. Upon all those who remain in their sin and do not follow God. It's a wrath that comes upon all who do not turn to God in faith for salvation. Because again, sin is opposed to God. And 1 John 3 tells us that one cannot remain in sin and at the same time belong to God. All those who remain in their sin get the real wrath of God because the wrath of God is the only option for sin. It's the only right reward for sin. Don't minimize the evil in your heart. Don't dismiss the temptation that flows through your mind. The sin that you commit, that you have in your heart, incurs the wrath of God if you are not in Christ Jesus. That's what John's saying here. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 8. Another passage of Scripture dealing with God's wrath. For those who are self-seeking and for those who do not obey the truth but instead obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So who warned you to flee from this certain wrath of God? It's 
rather difficult message that John is preaching, but it's so accurate and it's so spot on and it's so, so necessary for humanity. Unless you trust in Jesus, the wrath of God is coming for you. That's why He compels them here. Repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's why John is willing to stake his life on this message. His reputation on this message. That's why John's going to be beheaded. Because he's so convinced you need to turn from your sin and trust in God. We remember there that repentance is a rational decision and a willful act. It's not an emotional response. That's why John adds in verse 8, you must bear fruits in keeping with repentance. How do we flee? Who warned you to flee? Well, how can we flee? You bear fruits in keeping with repentance because genuine repentance will bear fruit. Genuine fruit. That's the evidence. That's your assurance. How John, John spends his whole first epistle. There's evidence for assurance and the evidence is the fruit of genuine repentance. So bear fruit. Repent. Let's move on here to the second warning that John gives in verse 8. He warns of blinding self-righteousness. Blinding self-righteousness. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So often, the Jews thought they were okay before God because they were simply Jews. Because they were simply Israelites. They had a problem with self-righteousness that's seen so clearly in the lives of the Pharisees. Self-righteousness is really a plague among all religious people, isn't it? And when we get too close to the line of self-righteousness, which we're prone to do, we can get sucked in rather quickly before we can even... Realize it. And self-righteousness comes when we stop comparing ourselves to God's standard and begin to compare ourselves to one another thinking, I'm better than so-and-so down the street or I don't commit that sin like they do. I'm better than that person. That is the breeding ground of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is as blinding as gazing directly at the sun, isn't it? It burns your heart just like the sun burns your eyes. And it burns you from seeing truth and reality. That before God, you are sinful. So self-righteousness is soul-condemning. Distracting us from God's standard. Turning our attention instead on man's standard. And so many people are prone to this. We're prone to this. That we think if we grew up in church, or if we pray, or if we grew up in a Christian family or tithe enough or do enough good works in the church, then, then we're exempt from God's judgment. Then we're okay. That John's saying that's not the case. Pharisees thought that same thing. If I pray long prayers, if I know the Old Testament, if I tithe enough, if people think I'm righteous, then I'll be righteous before God. That's not right. The Israelites, don't, don't even think about claiming Abraham as your justification. Just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're right before God. God can raise up children from the stones around us that are children of Abraham. It's not that that matters. It's your standing before God 
that matters. And apart from Christ, you're still under wrath. If you're not bearing the fruits in keeping with repentance, you're still in sin. And the wrath is coming, so flee. John is warning there in verse 8 of a blinding safety or a false justification before God. And we know that's a reality of so many people. A false assurance of salvation, isn't it? So many people are going to fit the description of Matthew chapter 7. They stand before Christ and said, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do signs and wonders and many mighty works? And Jesus is going to say, Depart from Me, for I never knew You. They're going to be stunned on that moment when Christ casts them away for eternity. Our churches are filled with people like that. America is filled with Oklahoma, filled, Weatherford, filled with people who are going to be completely stunned when they stand before Christ. John's warning here of that false assurance. Don't be blinded by that false assurance. So many people are. And how tragic is it, church? That churches are too caught up in shameful game, too caught up in trying to draw a crowd to proclaim these warnings found in Scripture. Too afraid of what people may think and how people may feel and too afraid of losing attendance and upsetting some people to proclaim the real warnings of Scripture that the wrath of God's coming upon all the unbelieving. Warnings aren't always bad. They're necessary. In fact, how would you be saved if someone hadn't proclaim to you the reality of sin and your need for a Savior and exhorted you to hear and heed the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let's move on here quickly to the third thing that John warns about. He warns of impending death. So there's certain wrath coming. Don't be blinded by false assurance. There's impending death coming, verse 9. And that death is near. It's as near as the axe being laid to the root of the trees. It's it's close. It's right around the corner. And God's axe will swing through and cut the roots of the unbelievers eventually. And it swings through with ease. And it does not dull one ounce when it does. Remember, God is being patient. 2 Peter chapter 3, God's being patient. Turn while He's being patient. Some of you think that I will wait till another time to repent. I'll wait to another time to give up this sin or that sin and come to Christ. The axe is laid to the roots now. You think I'll wait before I share the gospel with my family members, my co-workers, my neighbor. The axe is laid to the roots now. And mind you, the roots of the unbelieving are dry, weak, and dead. And one swing from God Almighty will do the work. Destruction is close. So do not think you can mock God and do not think you can escape His justice and do not think you can talk your way out of punishment. The axe is laid there. And it will soon be in the hands of God. So how can we not be cut? Verse 9, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. So, 
bear fruit. What fruit are we talking about? The fruit of verse 8. The fruit of repentance. The fruit of a changed life. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a life that's been impacted by Christ. Because let me tell you, when you encounter the Jesus of Scripture, you cannot walk away unchanged. You find and come in contact with this Jesus, you live a different life. A changed life. So if you don't want to be cut at the root, bear the fruit of repentance. Repent of your sin. And genuine repentance always bears genuine fruit. Notice what happens there if you do not repent. If you do not bear genuine fruit, you are cut down and thrown into the eternal fire. John's not trying to win brownie points, is he? It's amazing that he had such a following as he did. Because he looks at these people who are already intrigued by repentance and he hammers the message home. If you do not bear the fruit of genuine repentance, God will swing his axe and throw you into the eternal fire. We don't think about God like that, do we? We forget that God absolutely hates sin. And that is all that sin can offer. So be warned of the coming wrath, the certain wrath. Be warned of a false assurance and be warned that death and eternal absolute death is so very near. You know what's crazy about this message of John the Baptist? It works. Tremendously. Just like Peter's sermon at Pentecost, it pierces and cuts to the heart of the hearers with pinpoint accuracy. Look in verse 10. They begin to flock to John. What must we do? And it's not the elite. It's not the religious that are coming to Him. It's the uneducated people that are coming to Him. It is sinners, outcasts, and lowly people who are coming to Him. People who are keenly aware of their imperfections. People who of all people would be most offended. And yet, it's them that come flocking to John. And three times they ask Him the same question. Three different groups from three different angles. They ask Him, what shall we do? The wrath of God's certain. I know this. I've been falsely assured that I'm okay before God. I know this. And I know that the axe is laid to the root. It's urgent. I know this. So what do I do? Before we get confused here, John's not proclaiming a works-based salvation here. He's saying you must bear fruit. And he lays out the fruit to these three different peoples. Let's look at the three peoples first. You see the crowd. They're general people. They're the normal, average kind of person. They're not really lawbreakers. We would probably classify them as, you know, not bad people. But certainly they're sinners. And certainly they're convicted. Next you'll see tax collectors asking that question. These are crooks. These are the unreputable people. These are the sneaky, the con men. They're stealing from people in the name of the law. They're corrupting and twisting the law and robbing the poor. That's the tax collectors. And then you see the third group. Soldiers ask him this question. What shall we do? Soldiers are bullies, liars, crooks. They think they're above the law. They're oppressive rulers. They're uncaring and uncompassionate. That's the soldiers in Luke chapter 3. 
That's the Roman soldiers in Luke chapter 3. And each group cut to the heart by John's message of repentance and his warnings. What, what do we need to do? And John says, gives them instruction, you need to bear the fruit of repentance. In other words, you need to be other than what you're known for. Crooks and liars and cheats and con men and abusive rulers. You need to be different from that. So he addresses each crowd or each group individually. The crowd says, what shall we do? He says, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Is it tunics and foods that saves us? Is it sharing that saves us? No, not by any means. What John is saying here is, you need to bear the fruit of repentance. You need to bear the mark of Christianity. You need to be generous. Just as God is generous to you to provide repentance, just as God has been generous to you to save you and show you grace, you too need to show generosity to the world. This is just worldly stuff. Don't cling to it. It's not anything to you but worldly stuff. Freely give it to those who have need. To the tax collectors, he gives a different instruction. Teacher, what shall we do, they ask. He says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Bear the natural mark of a Christian. Bear the fruit of honesty. Don't twist and corrupt the law. Don't rob from the poor in the name of the law. Be upright. Have integrity. Be honest in your transactions. And only take what you're supposed to take. Be different from the world. Soldiers, what shall we do? Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Be content with your wages. Bear the mark of a Christian. Be content. Content with God. Content with what God has provided for you. Content and satisfied with Him and walking with Him in His presence. That's the fruit of repentance. You don't need the things of the world. You're generous. You're honest. You're content. All of which are marks of God. God's been so generous to us in salvation. God values honesty. He is calling Himself the God of truth. God wants us to be content and satisfied in Him. All three of these groups of people cut to the heart and then exhorted to bear the fruit. You know what that means? It again means repentance isn't something that's just emotional. Repentance is real. And genuine repentance produces genuine fruit. And genuine fruit is the evidence of your salvation. And the evidence of your salvation is the assurance of your salvation. That means a couple of things for us. That means one, we must examine our own lives to make sure we bear genuine fruit of genuine repentance. How can you say you belong to God and yet disregard Him with your life. It also means, church, we should never be ashamed to warn people of the reality of sin and wrath. God does it. And if God does it, why would we be ashamed to do it? That's the reality. Some of you need to hear that message this morning. You've lived a life of self for so long. You need to hear the real warnings of Scripture God's wrath is real. Don't be falsely assured of your justification. 
Know that it's coming and it's coming soon. The axe is laid to the root. But also realize that this message does cut to the heart. People respond. And they should be bearing the fruit of repentance as we should be. John preaches a stern message, one that's not lovely and enjoyable to look at all the time, but it's one of truth. God's being patient, and I would exhort you this morning, today can be the day of repentance. Turn from your sin and trust in God while God is applying mercy. While the door is open for the unbeliever. And if you are a believer this morning, hear John's words to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Live a holy life. Live a changed life. Live a life dedicated to God. Live a life totally committed to Him. Unlike the world. Generous and honest and content with Him. Not like anything else of everybody else. I hope that you examine John's message and that God strikes a chord with you either to examine your own heart or to not be ashamed of the reality of sin. The world needs to hear this message. The world needs to know God is bringing wrath upon all unrepentant, unbelieving people. So turn while He's being generous and gracious. God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for John's message and what it means. We thank You for a warning that is a warning of love and mercy and a warning of compassion. God, people will call You unfair because of this stern message of sin. But then again, they'd call You unfair if You didn't proclaim this message. I pray that You would use this Word Your Word to pierce hearts this morning. To stress to the importance of the believers here that holiness matters to You. A life lived matters to You. God, this is how You instructed John to prepare the world for Your coming. Calling them to repent. I pray the warnings may become real to us. Today would be the day of repentance for us all. That our lives would be dedicated and given to You only. Thank You, Lord, again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.